Let's invite the uh, Holy Spirit to be with us this morning. Father, we just thank you, Lord. I thank you, Lord, for the privilege to be able to stand before your people, Lord. And we just invite the Holy Spirit to be in here. Holy Spirit, have free course to move in and through me to bring this message, prepare our hearts to be able to draw near to you, Lord. Father, I just thank you, Lord, for your message. I thank you for your people. I thank you for those that are hungry here to want to know you more intimately, Lord. And I just pray for your, your, you would use my mouth to speak to everyone here, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you'd open your Bibles up to James chapter 4, verse 7. I'm going to speak to you today, this morning, on drawing near to God. This is something that's been, the Lord's been stirring in my heart for now it's, it's been over a year, but now it's just been coming on stronger. As I minister to the men and women in the jail and, and going in there and preaching to them, it's one thing to lead somebody to Christ, but it's another to lead them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. It, it's much more of, I wouldn't say a job, that just kind of sounds corrupt, but it's just there's a lot more effort that's involved in that. And, and these men and women, some of them are in there for a year, two, three years, and so they keep coming back. But you're obviously not going to preach a salvation message to them because they've already been saved. So you are trying to lead them to the heart of the Father. And, you know, if I don't know how, and if I'm not residing with the heart of the Father or in intimacy, how could I teach them? And so the Lord's been teaching me this and showing me this and um, it's just been wrecking me, to be quite honest. So here, let's go ahead and read this scripture. The Bible says in James 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 7, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now stop right there. If, if, if you wouldn't mind, just close your eyes for a minute. I want you to just meditate on this. Ponder this, the creator of the universe, the earth, and all its inhabitants, the only one who holds the seven seas in the palm of his hand. He hemmed in the roaring waters of the seas with the shorelines. He split the Red Sea for Moses, the children of Israel, so they could walk on dry land. He's a cloud by day and a fire by night. He's El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. He is the Lord of glory. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the light to this world, the only one true God. And He and He alone requests your presence. Not only your presence, but He desires to be intimately close. For we are told in His Word, He is a God who is passionate about His relationship with you and I. Exodus 34, 14. Just think about that for a minute. I mean, sometimes if you just sit there and just know, I've been, when I've been preparing this message and, and reading these scriptures, I've found that God yearns for us more than we yearn for Him. But the thing that stops all of that is, is, is not holding Him in reverence, not walking in the fear of the Lord, in sin. So God is a, he's, He is passionate about His relationship with you and I. This is God's unwavering desire. He's the one who has issued the invitation to you and I, for He longs to be known by His children. Adam knew the Lord openly, but because of sin or disobedience, was separated from His glorious presence and His and his fate extended to all mankind. Men and women could no longer see or know God as Adam once had. This was a man that walked with God and named all the animals. And then he was driven out. However, the Father yearned with great, great passion and compassion to redeem our fellowship from his, from his terrible sep separation. In answer, he sent Jesus, who'd been with the Father from the beginning, God manifested in the flesh to pay the price that would liberate us from darkness in order to reconcile us to God. If we receive Him as Savior and Lord, we've emphasized the liberation from sin and death, but neglect often to declare 
the intimate fellowship awaiting all who've been made free. I'm finding out more and more as I minister the gospel to people and neglect to tell them after being converted that an intimate fellowship awaits them with the Lord is costly and even disastrous as so many miss the beauty of knowing God intimately. I have always been amazed at the two totally different attitudes and behavior patterns of Moses and the children of Israel. The book of Exodus opens with Abraham's descendants suffering under harsh captivity. They had been in Egypt for almost 400 years. In the beginning, they, they enjoyed favor, but it was not long before they were enslaved and cruelly mistreated. In their agony, they began to cry out to God for deliverance. The Lord was moved by their prayers and sent a deliverer by the name of Moses. Though born a Hebrew, he'd escaped slavery and was raised as a grandson to Pharaoh in his household. As a prince of Egypt, he was moved by the plight of his brethren, but had to flee for his life to the wilderness and only to return years later and deliver Israel from their bondage by God's word and power. Israel's deliverance from Egyptian bondage parallels our deliverance from the slavery of sin. Egypt represents the world system just as Israel's a type of the church. When you, were not, when you and I were born, again, we were set free from the world system of tyranny and oppression. It's not hard to imagine how cruelly the children of Israel were used and abused by the citizens of Egypt. Their backs were scarred by the whips of Pharaoh's taskmasters. Their homes were slums and their food was leftovers. They had no hope of inheritance as they slaved to build the prosperity of their Egyptian masters. They wept as thousands of their infant sons were put to death by the order of Pharaoh. Though they suffered all this cruelty, they were quick to forget. For even after their deliverance from Egypt, whenever things went wrong, they would regret their flight from Egypt and mock their prayers for deliverance with comments like, it was better for us back in Egypt. And they would even be so bold as to suggest, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. That's Numbers 14.4. But not Moses. Think about it. He was the only one for whom the conditions had been better in Egypt. In fact, no one in the world at that time had it better than Moses. He was raised by the wealthiest man on earth, lived in the best, ate the best, wore the best, and was taught by the best. Servants took care of his every need and desire as his inheritance was great in both wealth and promise. He willfully left all this behind, and unlike the children of Israel, he never looked back nor longed for what was behind. So what made the difference? The answer is, Moses encountered God. He saw the fire and drew near to God. He met the living God in a burning bush on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel did not. When the Lord called him aside, he drew near to God. He didn't run away. Later, when the children of Israel were presented with an even more wonderful invitation, they drew back in Exodus 20. Where was Moses bringing the children of Israel when they left Egypt? I often ask that, and the normal response is the promised land. Yet, that's not true. He was headed for Mount Horeb or Sinai. Remember God's word to Pharaoh through Moses. Let my people go so they may worship me in the desert. Exodus 7, 16. It was not let my people go so they can inherit a land. Why would Moses take, their promise, take them to the promised land before first inter introducing them to the promiser? The desire of the ages. If he first brought them to the promised land, they would end up loving the promises rather than the promiser, God himself. Moses couldn't wait to bring them to the very place he met with God. Sadly, to a large extent, too many have preached more on what Jesus will do for us rather than who he really is. I, I'm guilty of that. I've done that before, but I'm finding out more and more as I draw near to God, his heart, I'm finding that I want others to be able to join in on that. Because after all, God saved you when you didn't deserve it. He saved me when I didn't deserve it. So therefore, it's, it's, it's not a calling, it's a commandment to tell others. 
As a result, many serve God primarily for benefit rather than in joyful response to who he is. It could be compared to a woman who marries a man for his wealth and prosperity. Her motive is not to know her husband for who he is, but rather for what he can do for her. Oh, oh she may love him on some level, but not for all, but for all the wrong reasons. I'm often going to this scripture and reading this to remind myself, but Jesus says in Matthew 21, he says, many will come to me in that day, what day? The the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done great and mighty works in your name? And I mean, you got to stop and think about these people. If they're doing these great mighty works, I mean, they're raising the dead, they're healing the sick. I mean, they're doing it. And that just shows you just how powerful the authority of Jesus' name is because you could be actually out of the will of God and use His name and still get results. And these people were doing this, but I always was just totally bewildered about that. And sometimes I would read that and it would just make me angry because I'd ask myself, what makes me think that I'm not going to be one of these people? And so one thing I've always found is when you're reading the Bible and there's something in there that you want to know more about, that there's a word, it's always good to go back to the original transcripts, which is Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, because that's what the Bible was originally written in. The Old Testament, Hebrew, the New Testament, Greek. So if you want to really find out what some of these words mean, do a word study, and it'll give you the true meaning. So I looked up the word new, and when you look up that Greek word new, he said, I never knew you. It means to have intimacy with him, to know him as a father knows his son. And the only way that's going to happen is if you spend time in prayer and reading his word. Because Jesus is the word, says that in the first chapter of John. He was, he was, he's the word. People who emphasize blessings of God to neglect of relationship with him create disciples who come to God to get something rather than those who respond to him for who he is. Once God has encountered as Moses experienced, the promises all fall into perspective. He's so much more wonderful than anything, even his blessings. Even his blessings. God's main purpose in delivering Israel was so they could know him and love him. He desired to make himself known to them. He said this in Exodus 19.4. He said, I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself, yet they missed their destiny. God's longing for intimacy with his people has never changed. It's never decreased. It has not changed. For this very desire is continually revealed in his word and reflected in Paul's passionate prayer. Paul says in Ephesians 1.17, for I always pray to God, our, our, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that He may grant you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, of insight into mysteries and secrets, and the deep and intimate knowledge of Him. That's the Amplified Version. He's made His passion known. God desires every born-again child to know Him deeply and intimately. Just think about that. I mean, if you're in here right now, You've probably had the enemy tell you, you know what, you're just, you you know, you you can't do this. You're you're not qualified because you're not on stage. You're not part of pastors, you know, men. You're you're not, no, it's for everybody. It doesn't matter what position you hold. It matters what your heart is and where your heart is. God doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. I've seen men in the jail and you can tell right then and there, yeah, they've made bad mistakes. They've totally messed their whole life up. But you can tell the heart and where they are and how they yearn to want to know Him. Because God doesn't necessarily listen to what we say. He watches what we do because what we do is the true testament of who we really are. Some of those guys say they're Christians, they love God, but yet as soon as they get out, they walk straight down to the liar's bench and have a drink with their buddies but yet they claim that they're saved. It's amazing that God desires us the way He does. I mean, I often just sit there and think, you know, the faults and stuff that I do have, but yet aside from that, God wants to, to, he, He desires to have intimacy as long as I come to Him in a humble and contrite spirit. And I'm finding that the key to it is not holding anything back from the Lord. 
If you think you can hide from God or keep a secret from Him, it's going to hold you back from having intimacy with Him. He knows everything. He already knows. He knows every thought that you have. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces the division of our soul and our spirit and of the joints and marrow. And He is a discerner of our thoughts and intents of our heart. In verse 13 it says, For everything is open to Him, to whom we must give an account. He, he knows everything. And I believe that that's one reason why the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. I mean, you always hear about all the stunning things he did. He, he would wrestle a bear, wrestled a lion. He killed Goliath with, you know, smooth stone. I mean, just the, the triumph that he had as a soldier. But yet he, David had many failures. You don't hear the failures too often. He was an adulterer. He tried to cover it up with Uriah. Had had the, her husband murdered. He was a failure at a father, raising Absalom. But despite all that, the Bible still says that he was a man after God's own heart. Why? The, the secret is he was always quick to repent. He was always quick to repent. When you read the Psalms, he says, Oh Lord, please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Why? Because he knew what it was like to be in the presence of God. And he would give up everything, the kingdom, all the wealth, everything, to have the presence. He didn't care about any of that. He just wanted God's presence. We serve a living God, the original Father, whose heart aches for his children. He is a communicator who desires interaction. Paul was quick to point out, the struggling, to the struggling believers of Corinth, he writes, you will, re you will remember that before you became Christians, you went around from one idol to another, not one of which could speak a single word. From Paul's exhortation, we see one of the primary characteristics that differentiates God, our Father, from all false gods is simply this. He speaks. A.W. Tozer wrote, that in the last days, the doctrine of justification by faith has been interpreted by many in such a manner as actually to bar men from the knowledge of God. The whole transaction of religious conversions has been made mechanical and spiritless. The man is saved, but he is not hungry nor thirsty after God. In fact, he is specifically taught to be satisfied and is encouraged to be content with little. That's the pursuit of God. A.W. Tozer, he goes on to write, God wills that we should push on into His presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. I'm preaching to myself right now, by the way. If you didn't come to hear the message, I'm preaching to myself. That's all right. However, this is one so worthy of our pursuit is not an easy catch, per se. He's not an easy catch, per se. He is the holy and great King, and as such is to be revered. Before you certainly, before we, we, we cannot talk about drawing near to God without addressing the issue of holy fear. For the Bible says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. Psalms 89.7 God is drawn to those who love, honor, and fear him. For this reason, James says, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's what James said in verse 9. In this verse, you might be thinking, well, James is speaking to the unsaved, as we usually refer to the unconverted as sinners, yet... Fifteen times in his discourse, James refers to his audience as brethren. He is talking to those who are born again. So this is what it means to fear God. To fear God is to esteem, honor, hold Him in highest regard, as well as to venerate, stand in awe, and reverence Him. It is to tremble with the greatest respect for Him, His presence and His commandments, as well as wishes. This is, this is only the beginning. I'm, just, I'm not even really touching on it. Sometimes, to understand, sometimes in order to understand what something is, it helps to know what something is not. An excellent example of approaching God's presence without holy fear is seen in the lives of Aaron, Aaron's two sons in the Old Testament. Prior to the, uh, the, the completion of the tabernacle, the Lord instructed Moses... 
In Exodus 28.1, Now take Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nabab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Atamar, these men were set apart and trained to minister to the Lord and stand in the gap for the people. They were authorized to come near his presence. Their duties and parameters for worship were outlined by specific instructions passed on from God to Moses. Following their training, they were consecrated. Then God's presence filled the tabernacle and their ministry began. But before the two, it was short-lived. Even after the glory of the Lord had been revealed in the tabernacle a little while later, it says, Leviticus 10.1, Nahab, Nabab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put, it, put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Notice Nabab and Abihu offered profane fire in the presence of the Lord. One definition of profane in Webster's Dictionary is showing disrespect or contempt for sacred things, irreverent. It means to treat God. This is what it means. It means to treat God, treat what God calls holy or sacred as if it were common. These two men grabbed the censers set apart for the Lord's worship and filled them with fire and incense of their own choosing, not the offering prescribed by God. They were careless with what was holy, and it led to their disobedience. They approached the presence of the Lord, bearing an irreverent, unacceptable offering by, tearing, by treating what was holy as common. So look what happens in Leviticus 10.2. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. I've heard people say, well, that's the Old Testament. That's under the old law. We're now under the new covenant. God changed his mind. We're under the new testament. God doesn't change his mind. And Malachi 3, verse 6 says, For I am the Lord thy God, and I do not change. He doesn't change. These two men were instantly judged for their irreverence and met with immediate death. This irreverence took place in the very presence of God, and though they were priests, they were not exempt from rendering God honor. They sinned by approaching a holy God as though he were common. They had become too familiar with his presence. Hear the words of Moses immediately following their judgment. And note the words, near me. This is what it says in Leviticus 10.3. And Moses and Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. This is an eternal as well as universal decree. God says no one can draw near by holding him in light esteem or regarding him as common. He must be deemed holy and held in reverence by all in His presence. The Lord had made it clear that irreverence could not survive in His presence. But Nahab, Abihu, did not take heed. Today is no different. He's the same holy God. We cannot expect to be admitted into His presence with disrespectful attitudes. I'm preaching to myself. There's no special exceptions because of family connections. These two priests were Moses' nephews as well as Aaron's sons, but both knew better than to question God's judgment, for he only, for he is alone, is a just God. In fact, Moses warned Aaron and the two surviving sons not to even mourn their judgment, lest they die as well. I, mean, I don't know, I just can't even get over that. Just when you read that, this would have further dishonored the Lord. So the bodies of Nahab and Abihu were carried outside the camp and buried. The reason they lacked the fear of the Lord, for once they withdrew from His presence, Moses addressed them, and this is what he said. He said, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, and that His fear may be before you, so that you may not sin. Moses said, Do not fear, because God has come to see if his fear is before you. It sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Moses was differentiating between being afraid of God and the fear of the Lord. The difference is huge. The person who is scared or afraid of God has something to hide. He doesn't want to come near because the pure light of God's presence will expose what he's hiding. Paul tells us all things are exposed 
and are made manifest by His light. Ephesians 5.13 God doesn't want us to be scared of Him, but to fear Him. Paul writes, God has not given us a spirit of fear. 2 Timothy 1.7 And John writes, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. These men are addressing the spirit of fear, not the fear of God. With these statements, for the New Testament writes, also tells us to work out your, your own salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2.12. And again, Paul tells us we are to serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12.28-29. It is written, Be holy, for I am holy. You certainly cannot rule out holy fear as being a vital part of New Testament Christianity. I'm noticing this more and more as I draw near to the Lord. Notice Moses says to the people when God's presence came, that his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. It is not the love of God, but the fear of the Lord that keeps us from sin. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not, the love, not love and kindness. You see, unlike the man who is scared of God, the man who fears God has nothing to hide. He knows his life is an open book. He knows his life is an open book. In, in Psalms 139, David says this, 139 verse 20, 23, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is why he was a man after God's own heart. He was basically just saying, here I am, Lord. I, I, I don't have nothing to hide. You know me. The hairs on my head are numbered. You know everything about me. There's nothing I'm hiding. You can't hide from God. We just can't hide from Him. His son, Solomon, says this in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the wisest man who ever lived. There was never anyone after him, the Bible says, that would have wisdom like he had. And yet, right when he gets to the end of the book, the very last chapter in Ecclesiastes, this is what he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep His commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. To fear God is to, is to tremble at His word. This means to, that we obey even if we, if we don't see the reason or benefit of it. It means we obey even when we don't understand. It's obedience even when it hurts. And that's the hardest thing. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm dealing with that. That's just something that I'm dealing with. Just making some of my wife and I making some big decisions in, in, in how we serve God. How, I mean, are we totally sold out? If we stay right here, you know, in the, in the last house we we're in, will we fulfill God's plan for our life? And these are questions, these are, they're, they're tough questions. I mean, but these are just personal questions that we had to ask because I know I'm going to have to stand before God. We all will. And we're given account. And I believe that, this is my personal belief, I think that when we stand before Jesus on the judgment seat, we're going to be judged on what we were called to do, not on what we did and how well we did it. And if we really trust Him. The fear of the Lord is not an optional, it's not optional, it's required. Proverbs 14, 27, the fear of the Lord is the fountain of life. Psalms 25, 14, the secret of the Lord is with them that fear Him, and He will show them His covenant ways. Proverbs 15.33, The fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom. Psalms 111.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 14.26, In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. This is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah 66.2, The humble, he teaches his way. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. Psalms 25, verse 12. If you'd open up your Bible to go, go to uh, Numbers chapter 22, verse 8. Let's look at the life of Balaam. He was a great prophet of God, 
not a false god, but, a very, but the very Lord we serve. His prophetic ministry was so powerful. It's in Numbers chapter 28, verse 8. His prophetic ministry was so powerful it reached the ears of kings. One king in particular was Balak, king of Moab, Midian. The people of Moab, Midian, were terrified because Israel had just leveled the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt. And now they camped on the plains of Moab. The people reasoned that if Egypt could be destroyed so readily, they would have no trouble doing the same to them. The fear was rampant and reached even to the place. The king had a, had a plan. He understood that whomever this great prophet Balaam blessed would be blessed, and whoever he cursed would be cursed. So he sent noblemen with a huge offering to Balaam and beseeched him to return with, with, and returned with them so he could stand beside the king and curse Israel from the high places of Moab. Balaam was intrigued. This is what he said, verse 22, verse 8. Lodge here, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord speaks to me. His response sounds similar to that of most believers today. Let me pray about this matter and hear what the Lord says, even though it's, it's in the Bible. I mean, I've done that before when you don't know what's in there, but yet you're praying about it. The Lord comes to Balaam and demands, who are these men with you? In other words, why do you even need to pray about this? These men don't have a covenant with me, but they are asking you to curse my people. Why do you even need to ask? There is a message to all of us in this. There are some things we don't have to pray about. We should, really, we should already know God's desire before we even ask. Yet it pleases me when my children come to me and approach me and ask for something they already know, I'm going to say no, but they ask me anyway. Why? Why do they even speak? Why do they ask? I mutter to myself. After giving, they just did that last night and constantly while I was putting this together, of course. And then the answer, they, they knew deep down that they would hear, and that was no. They do this because my word is still law, restrictive to them in that area of life rather than their delight. Returning to Balaam. I imagine the reward offered was huge, and the, and the position of honor would be great among the people of Moab, Midian. Did Balaam's desire for money and honor veil his eyes from perceiving sound wisdom? Don't forget, this man's a prophet of God. God, who is merciful, probably thought, okay, Balaam, since you didn't get it, get, get the clue, or really didn't want to, I'll make my will very plain. So he utters, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. This is what he said, verse 12. Now, is this clear? I often find that when God speaks, it is precise and clear. We are the ones who muddy it and complicate it. I, I've done that. Balaam obeys, and the following morning sends the missionaries away with go back to your land for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Even though he obeys, there is reluctance that can be heard in his choice words, especially the word refused. When, when I was a young man, uh, my freshman year, I lived in Auburn, and my friends in the summertime, we would go down, they would always go down to the river down below the Forest Hill Bridge. It's a real dangerous place to swim, but back then we didn't care. We just thought it was great to go down there. All my friends would go, but every time I'd go to ask my mom, Mom, can I go with my friends down to the river? I didn't have a license, but my friend just got a license. He got this Jeep. It was all lifted, and it was the most dangerous thing on the road at the time. Didn't, the steering was bad. And so my mom looked at me and said, No, you're not going. Uh, and I'd just ask her and ask her, Mom, Mom, just let me go, please. You know, and I, would just, I was angry. And so I'd go to the door and say, Sorry, man, I, my mom said I can't go. And so knowing that my desire was to go, but yet my mom's authority was keeping me from going, but see, she knew my best interest. She knew that if I went, I could drown. I could, the, the Jeep could roll. He could be going too fast. And really, there was drown, drownings happened down there yearly in that river. And so I wanted to go. I wanted but yet 
really in my heart I was disobeying because I was standing ramrod, stern, looking at my mom with fire in my eyes. But Balaam was a prophet with an unhealthy desire for money. Covetousness burned within him. He yearned for the nicer things of life as well as greater social influence. He, he obeyed, but it was not without reluctance. God's word brought restriction rather than the delight because it kept him from what he really wanted. The elders of Moab and Midian returned to King Balak and reported, Balaam refuses to come with us, yet this didn't deter the king immediately. He sends men of greater position and honor with more money Balaam's way. Why does Balak do this? I believe demonic forces urged, urged him. Why do I say this? The Bible explains in James, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Notice the two things first, the words own desires. Any strong desire we have contrary to God's will is covetousness, which is idolatry. Secondly, notice enticed. This is, this is the enemy's part. He entices. But, but hear this. You can't be enticed by something you don't desire. And if you were to offer a drug or ecstasy to most people in the church, they wouldn't hesitate before refusing. They'd just say, no, I, that, that's not, I'm not taking that. Why? They have no desire for it. You can't be enticed by something you don't desire. However, you can be enticed by the desires you have not put under the cross. We are enticed by things we covet, or should I say desire intensely. The enemy knew this prophet loved money and recognition and urge, urges this ungodly king to send more of both. These representatives have the power to offer anything Balak possesses by saying, I will do whatever you say to me. Wow. What an offer. It's one thing to be offered anything your neighbor has. He may or may not have a lot, but it is quite another thing for a king to offer you anything he has, especially if your weakness is in the areas of the king's strength. Yet listen to what Balaam's response is in verse 22, 18. Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. He's wanting to do it, but he's being restricted by God's word because he's not, he doesn't, he's not walking in the fear of the Lord. Most would be inspired by Balaam's obedience. Here again, his choice words of could not. Again, he is being restricted by the word of the Lord from what he truly desires. Balaam knows what most people who walk through the doors of churches know. You cannot willfully disobey the word of the Lord and still be blessed. He also knows what perhaps half of those who attend church know. Judgment awaits the willfully disobedient. Yet sometimes this is just enough information to lead you into trouble. Because if you can't get it one way in the will of God, you'll continue to search to find it another way to get what you want within the parameters of the will of God. In explanation, examine Balaam's next statement in verse 20, or chapter 22, verse 19. Now therefore, please... You also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. I mean, God already told him, you know, don't go, but yet he's going to go try to convince God, hey, man, I think you need to really, you know, look at this again. Do you hear this? What more will the, will the Lord, what more the Lord will say? Does, does he think more money is going to change God's mind? Does he think the first time the Lord said, do not go with him, is, is because God wanted him to hold out for a better offer? <laughs> I mean, this guy's like just totally out of his gourd. Why does he need to pray about this again? I mean, I've read this story over and over again, but I never saw it really th this way. Do you see, he is still trying to find a way to get what he wants. His passionate desire is overriding any sense of reason. You see, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this story because I'm, I'm building a platform here and I'm going to just show you because a lot of this kind of relates to my life and I'm just sharing it with you because it, this is a real dangerous position to be in. 
You could totally miss what God's plan is for your life if, you're, if you have the spirit of Balaam. Because after all, when you read the book of Revelation, Jesus addressed the church of Pergamos and said, you hold the doctrine of Balaam. And he's basically saying, those that have ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. He's addressing this Jesus, and he's saying that this guy is a fraud. I mean, he began with the Lord. But see, the Bible doesn't say those that begin with the Lord are saved. It says those that endure to the end shall be saved. That's a big difference. That's one thing that just opened my eyes. It's opened my eyes. So why does he need to pray about this again? Do you see? He is still trying to find a way to get what he wants. His passionate desire is overriding any sense of reason. It is no different than the teenage daughter who pesters her father until she gets to go, go out with the popular boy. Balaam is stubborn and, and unwilling to fulfill God's desire with joy because it rages against his covetous heart, or should I say, heart of idolatry. Scripture affirms this with stubbornness is idolatry. 1 Samuel 15, 23. Here, let's go there. 1 Samuel 15, 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. This is what Samuel said to King Saul when he wouldn't wait to hear the, the word of the Lord. He decided to, to do, it on, do it his own way. Hear God's response to Balaam. And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men come to, if the men come, come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do. Numbers 22.20 the men were going to call him the next morning because they stayed with Balaam and hoped he'd return with them. So in essence, God is saying, when the men come to call you, go with them, but only the word which I speak to you that you shall do. Wow. Maybe we're wrong in the assessment. Notice it doesn't say, now the devil came to Balaam at night. It said, and, and he said, rise and go with them. Nor does it say, now a deceiving spirit came to Balaam that night and said, I was joking earlier, but in light of this, I could look at it. God had him hold out for more money, but because now, now he's the one saying go. I mean, it's like God said don't go, but now he's saying go. Are you, are you guys seeing this? I mean, God said, don't go, and that was his word. It was like, I mean, when God says something, normally you just, okay, I'm not doing it. I'm just, I'm going to stay. But he's still asking and asking and asking, and finally, God just like, he caves in. All right, hey, you want it? You want this? Okay. And so he gives it to him. Balaam now has the word of the Lord to go. He rises early the next morning to do what he was instructed by the Lord the, the night before to do, and watch what happens. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. Okay, wait a minute. Is God schizophrenic? <laughs> oh, no, he's not. Now the Lord is angry because Balaam is simply doing what God told him to do the night before. We know God is not schizophrenic. So how do we explain this? The answer is found in God's word in Ezekiel. Recall the Lord says... When his own come to him with covetous in their hearts, this is what he says, I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter according to his covetous desires. So really, I could almost say that what you want may not spiritually be what you need. It could actually, in essence, destroy you in the long term. I know I... I mean, this is hard. I know it is. Because when I started seeing this, it just really... This is what many in the church do not know or understand. If we really want something, if we continue to covet when God has already revealed His desire, quite possibly, He'll give it to us. Even when it's against His will, because He loves us so much. 
even if he knows we will later be judged. At this point, you may be shocked, but consider Israel. They wanted a king. Samuel approached the Lord with their request, and God let them know his desire was for them not to have a king. He knew what was best for Israel. He told Samuel the king would take their best sons, daughters, lands, vineyards, and groves, as well as tax them. Does this sound familiar? It's kind of where we're at right now, huh? Samuel brought this word of the Lord to the people. Read their response. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. Notice the Bible does not say they refused the voice of the Lord. Again, just like with Moses, they disqualified the messenger by maintaining their own image of the Lord so they could have what they wanted. God confronted Samuel in private. They have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me. That's Samuel 8. In response, God gave them their king. He even picked them out with the first being Saul. Just as predicted, the kings took their best land, sons, daughters. It was fulfilled. Everything took place. Just as it was prophesied. Consider Israel in the wilderness just after they got out of Egypt. Look at this. They ate the finest food man had to offer. God was feeding them manna from heaven. Elijah ate just two cakes of it and ran for 40 days and nights. That is, that's like, I mean, I don't know, it's not even equivalent to a power bar. <laughs> Yet Israel, Israel tired of it. They were whining. This, this just goes to show you that God hates complaining. He doesn't like it when we complain. He hates it when we're complaining because it shows, it's basically our hearts are saying, God, I don't like what you're doing in my life, and you better change it. I mean, he, he, this is what he's spoken to me. <laughs> Yet Israel, tired of it, whined for meat. They requested meat from the, from the Lord, and we read that God gave them their requests. Psalms 106.15, again, they were given their covetous desires. In fact, he miraculously provided it to them. Think about what he did. He brought the winds. He brought quail in. They were out in the desert. There's no, there wasn't any birds out there. But God went to these great lengths to, to answer their call. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power, he brought in the south wind. He also rained meat on them like the dust. Feathered fowl like the sand of the seas, and he let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. Psalm 78. They made a request. God gave it to them by the way of miraculous, by his power. He, he, he brought into the desert quail enough to feed three million people. Think about that. What an amazing miracle, because quail don't live in the desert. Not, not only this, but they did not have guns or dogs. What a great miracle, yet watch what happens. So they ate and were filled, for he gave them their own desire. For they were not deprived of their craving, but while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them and slew the toughest of them and struck down the choicest men of Israel. Psalm 78, 29-31. He miraculously grants their desire, but before they were finished, his judgment came upon them. He answered them according to the passionate desires of their heart. God will give you the desires of your heart, but the question is, have you asked him if it's his will and plan for you to have it? What you may want may not be what you need. I'm finding this out. What your desire, what you desire that is not God's plan for your life could, could totally sidetrack you from the plan he's predestined in you from being fulfilled. Oh, but you might be saying, oh, hey, man, I'm just having fun right now. I got, you know, about 10 more years and I'm going to get my life together. I got plans once I get married, you know, and I meet that great guy. You know, he's, we're going to live happily ever after. and We're going to have a house and, uh, and then we'll go to church then like my parents do. <laughs> I mean, th this was a thought that I actually had when I was a young kid. But unlike the prodigal son, that was my life, Really? I was given the option to go to Christ for the nations, 
Or take a job in San Francisco making $75 an hour at 21. I didn't hesitate. I took the money because my heart wasn't seasoned. And God was saying, this is the way, walk in it. And instead, I missed the mark. Just like the prodigal son, a man had two sons, the younger son, wanted his inheritance early. Instead of when his father had passed it on. So the father gave him what his son wanted, knowing that his son wasn't spiritually ready for it. I wasn't ready for that money. What did the son do? He wasted it on all wild living and ended up in the pig's pen where he became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding looked good to him. While I was in San Francisco making that money, I was, I was living on Treasure Island in a trailer. The guy let me stay out there in a trailer because I was commuting back and forth and it became so rough on me. Coming, I was commuting from Georgetown all the way to San Francisco, work every day. And I ended up falling asleep at the wheel and, and it just scared me to death. I just figured, okay, it's not worth it, but this money, I need this. And I had these plans. I'm going to save all this money. I'm going to buy a house. I'm going to invest in real estate, the stock market. I'm going to be a millionaire. And then I'll go to Bible college. But I could honestly stand here and tell you I worked down there for seven years. The only thing I got was experience in doing what I'm doing now, but I lost everything. I was making over 100000 a year, 21 years old, and at the end of the end, I had filed bankruptcy, lost it all. I came out of there bound in pornography, bound in sin, and like the prodigal son, I came back to the father. And my parents lived in Roseville at the time, and I came down that altar, abundant life, crying to the Lord, knowing that I'd, I'd made an unwise decision. But yet, the God gave me the desires of my heart. He let me do what I wanted, even though he knew that it was going to hurt. I mean, if you could just think about it, you know, some of the decisions we make and some of the things we do, just think about how, how the Father is just yearning. Just, I just wish he'd wake up. I wish he'd wake up and come back. He has no idea what the fellowship, what we could be doing together. I was religious and lost. I thought that just calling myself a Christian by name only, I was a Christian. But the definition of a religious spirit is simply this. A religious spirit is a person who uses God's written word to execute their own will or agenda. They twist the word to carry out God's word to the desires of their heart, not the heart of God the Father. You see, religion always portrays a false way to paradise. Always. Whereas a relationship with Jesus Christ takes you straight to the cross for God's plan of redemption for your life and for mine. Jesus sends a swift warning, as we talked about early, to the church of Pergamos. He says in verse, chapter 2, verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam. Repent or else, or I will come to you quickly and will fight them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. You see that word, overcomes? The Bible says, they that endure to the end shall be saved. There's, you can overcome. It's not too late. Amen. It's always too soon to quit, but it's never too late to come to the Lord. It's always too soon to quit. Those guys and those women in the jail, they all, they're, just, they're ready to give up. I had a guy write me the letter the other day, and we, I mean... We've been having fellowship all day, and he's just strong. He's got a gift, but he wrote me a letter. He got transferred to another jail up in Tahoe, and he wrote me a letter and saying, you need to come see me. I'm ready to commit suicide. I, I think I'm going to hang myself. I was preaching a message one night about four months ago, and I was on the second floor. I preached one message, dismissed that service. Another message or another class was coming, and as I waited and waited and waited, and no one came. Finally, I went up to the door, and I pushed the button. I said, officer, is there a problem? He said, you're going to have to leave. I said, oh, okay, what's going on? He said, oh, we've had an accident here. You need to leave. I said, okay. So I grabbed my bags, and I went out. Well, what happened was they dismissed the next class, to, or the, the next pod was coming. I didn't see it happen, but before the guys got around the corner, one guy had a massive heart attack, and he fell dead right in the hallway. And so as I'm getting my stuff out, 
Here they are. They've got them in the ambulance and the doors are wide open. I'm standing right there and here's this guy that I've ministered before. They got the, the, the defibrillators and they're shocking him and shocking him and nothing's happening. I'm just standing. I'm praying. I don't even know what to do. I wanted to jump in there and put my hands on them and just... But they wouldn't let me get in there, and I just stood there. And it, I'll tell you what, that was the hardest thing right there because I didn't know if he, if, he, if he knew the Lord. And that vivid, vivid image of him with that defibrillator, his body, and that was it. He, 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 he slipped into eternity. He was dead. His last, he, and, and, and some of the guys were saying, oh, he's got these plans to get out and get his life straightened out, and you know he's going to get his life together, and things are, are going to be great. But he had no idea he'd die wearing an orange jumpsuit. We're one breath away from eternity. I must remind you, and you know it well, that even though the Lord rescued the whole nation of Israel from Egypt, he later destroyed every one of those who did not remain faithful. The New, the new, the new Living Translation says, In Jude, Jude then describes New Testament believers who profess the grace of God, yet slip back to live a life of covetousness, lust, and disobedience. In Jude eleven twelve, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts, while they feast with you without fearing, serving only themselves. Love feasts means church services. You see, Jesus said He's coming back for an unspotted bride. Who has kept Himself unspotted from the world's lust? But Jude says, these are professing believers. Feast with you without fearing, serving only themselves. They desire the blessings and, and even closeness to the Lord, yet lack the fear of God. They are deceived, and their deception will only continue to grow if they do not return to the heart of God with holy fear and love. Jesus is calling everyone, of, everyone, I believe this nation, Jesus is calling, return to your first love. We must lose our lives for His sake and the gospel. We must live for His desires. We must love what He loves and hate what He hates. What is important to Him must become important to us, and what is not so important to Him must not be so important to us. We must have His heart. That's my prayer. That's what I've been asking Him. I mean, I find myself not even asking for, for material things. I mean, I'm not saying God will not give you things. We all have needs, but I just know what I, what I need spiritually in order to please Him. I want to be pleasing to His eye. I mean, don't you want to be pleasing to the Father and know that you're doing what He's called you to do and He's, he's equipping you because His anointing and His power and authority is awaiting you so that you can walk in that. I, I've, just, I, I've noticed just being totally yielded to the Holy Spirit because He's the one that's down here that wants to work in and through you. I mean, I think at times He's the most important neglected and ignored person in the world because we don't recognize his position but jesus he's not down here he sits at the right hand of god the father so who's down here you know bringing the conviction bringing the boldness and doing all these works it's the holy spirit when you read the book of acts and you see them talk they say things like it was good to the holy spirit in us to do this and that or the holy spirit wouldn't let us go here and, I mean, it was all the Holy Spirit. They were 100% yielded, and so therefore they were doing great and mighty works because they were showing them what to do, what to say, what not to say, where to go, what to, you know, what. It was amazing. And I'm just thinking, I want that in my life. It is when we seek our own desires to the neglect of His that we lose touch with His heart. Bill, if you could come to the keyboards, please, my friend. Does this mean that our lives will not be, will have per does this mean that our lives will not have personal, any times of personal refreshment? Does God deny His people recreation and rest? Absolutely not. It doesn't. The Scripture tells us that God gives us richly all things to enjoy. 1 Timothy 6, 17. In Psalms 145, 18-20, the Lord is close to all 
who call on him. Yes, to all who call on him sincerely, he fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cries for help and rescues them. The Lord protects all those who love him. If you could bow your heads in the presence of the Lord, you, may, you might be here and you know that you, you, maybe you don't have a relationship with the Lord. Maybe you've just been calling yourself a Christian by name only.